0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudeman. On today's show, I'm chatting with New York Times bestselling author and journalist Jeff Perlman. He's got a new book out called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Yeah, I read a book about football, and that's because Jeff is an awesome writer, full stop. In fact, you need to follow him on Twitter because he's not just a writer and he's not just someone who shuts up and sticks to sports. He's got an opinion on work, politics, the economy, and life in general. And as you'll hear in our conversation, sports gives us a language to talk about what's happening in this crazy fucking world around us. So if you want to hear stories about what it takes to follow your dreams and become a sports journalist, or if you want to hear crazy USFL stories, or learn about how Donald Trump ruined it all, sit tight and I'll be right back with Jeff Perlman and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudeman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody, Lori Rudeman here. You listen to Let's Fix Work because you believe there's more to life than just building your corporate resume. That's why I want to tell you about Build Your Life Resume. It's an eight-week coaching program from my pal, Jesse Itzler, a New York Times bestselling author of Living with a Seal. I took the course earlier this year, and it has helped me in all buckets of my life, work, family, mindfulness, and wellness. You know me. If you want to fix work, you got to fix yourself. And BYLR was a great first step for me. Visit TakeBYLR.com to sign up for Build Your Life Resume. There's one more eight-week coaching program in 2018, which starts on November 1st, so you've got to act today. Jesse will help you get out of ruts, challenge yourself, and tap into your inner reserve to achieve your goals. I took the class and loved it, so visit TakeBYLR.com and sign up for Build Your Life Resume. That's TakeBYLR.com. Sign up today because class begins on November 1st. That's TakeBYLR.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. I have a really awesome guest today. He's just a fabulous writer and someone I've admired for a while. It's Jeff Perlman. Jeff, how you doing? Welcome to Let's Fix Work.
1: Lori, I'm standing outside of Whole Foods in uh, Southern California. So uh, they have the best iced coffee in town. So I'm, I'm okay.
0: Yeah, you're living somebody's dream. I hope it's your dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad to have you here. You know, I've been following your career for a while and it's just a real honor to have you as a guest. And I know that you've wanted to be a writer since high school and you made your dream happen. So I'm wondering if you can tell my audience about that journey.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a small town, Park, New York, which is about an hour north of New York City. And when I was a kid, I was raised on sports biographies. My dad used to work nearby in Stanford, Connecticut, and he would always come home from the library with like a stack of six or seven sports books. She would just grab a bunch and bring them home to me and I would absorb them. And my local library in Mail Pack is a small library, but whenever they got new sports books in, they would actually call me. One librarian, her name was Jerry, and she would call me and she would say, okay, we have Bo Jackson's book just came in. I'm not gonna put it out. If you come down in the next day, I'll hold it for you. So I'd run down. It was awesome. Little things like that make, you know, a huge difference in someone's life. and I. I just got really into sports and reading about sports. And I would sit at that. No one in my household cared about sports at all. No one. So we would sit at the table and my dad would read the paper. My brother would read the paper. My mom would read the paper. And I always got the sports section myself. So I grew up really you know, living and dying with the written word and reading sports accounts of games. And I ended up interning when I was a junior in high school. The local newspaper, the patent trader, like this weekly paper out of Cross River, New York, the sports editor, I wrote him a letter and he let me sort of work as an intern and he paid me in food. He just would take <laughs> me out every now and then to the Jewish deli. But those little things you look back and people tend to say like, oh, you're self made or you did it through hard work and blah blah blah. And that's not there's definitely truth to hard work, but there's always a million people who come along and sort of help you and make a path easier or more accessible. So you know, I wrote for my high school paper and then I went to University of Delaware and I wrote for my college paper and I had a bunch of internships. And it was just always a matter of, you know, just really wanting it, like wanting to be a writer, loving writing. And I got a job out of college at the Nashville, Tennessee, and I was there for a couple of years and I went to Sports Illustrated. Kind of here I am.
0: Yeah, wow. That's a great journey. Well, there are so many people who listen who are stuck in corporate jobs and they feel like they too would be a writer or they would be, you know, a ballet dancer or whatever the hell they want to be, if only for yep. those student loans or if only for those mortgages or those obligations. So can you yep. talk to me about people who are stuck in shitty jobs? You know, what does it take to be a working writer in 2018? And are they fetishizing it or is it possible for them?
1: All right. So again, like I got lucky in a lot of ways, like my parents paid for my college education. I've never minimized the impact of that, not having the student loans a lot of people have. I also came along at a really good time to come along. I sort of came along... So I got out of college in 1994 at the University of Delaware. And it was still when newspapers were thriving. So I got out of college and I immediately landed a job. And I applied to probably 100 different places, but I got a job at the National Tennessean. I first, my salary was 26000 which in 94 sounded pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you 22 years old and you're making 26000 Absolutely. Yeah. You're living in Tennessee. You're kind of psyched. And I came along at a good time. It's a lot... I'm just being honest. I hate to not sugarcoat it, but it's a lot harder. Like Making it now is harder. There are fewer places to write for. It's just harder. The death of newspapers, the slow death of print has made it more difficult. But that being said, I think there are a lot more jobs working for teams, working for team websites, working for league websites. You know, nfl.com, nba.com, all those sites, they did not exist when I was coming out of college. Teams did not have individual websites. So I think it's still very, 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 very possible to work in sports and work in sports media. I don't think it's a fetish dream. I think it's a realistic dream. I just think you have to rethink sort of how to go about it. You can't go about it the way I did in 1994.
0: Yeah, I love your creative approach to that. And I also love your background because if I remember correctly, you didn't start out necessarily as a professional sports writer you were writing about mm. food fashion. And didn't you also write about some of the stuff that was happening in Tennessee with like coal mining, or at least you had some exposure to that. So oh, yeah. you've got a whole history of writing before you became a sports writer, correct?
1: Here's a weird thing about me. I was the world's biggest screw up
0: <laughs> yeah. as a
1: young journalist. And I'm not exaggerating. I would argue from 1994 to 95, 94, 95, I was probably the worst journalist in the country at a major newspaper. <laughs> I was hired at the Tennessean. They liked my creativity. That's what the editor told me. Oh, they hired all right.
0: me. That's flattering. Yeah.
1: Yeah, of course. But I was a screw up. So you can be as creative as you want, if you can't get your facts right, you're nothing. And I um, I got hired. I had interned at the Tennessean, so they had one opening, and there was a food and fashion writer. I knew nothing about food, nothing about fashion, but that was my first job because it was the one slot they had. And my job was really to write about restaurants and food trends and stuff, fashion trends. Huh. And I was terrible. I was the worst. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't listen to advice. I was straight out of college. And I thought because I'd been editor of my college paper, maybe, or whatever, or you always told you're a good writer. Like, I was really cocky. I was unwilling to take advice. I was unwilling to take criticism. I didn't listen to my editors at all. I was just the worst. And so I did food and fashion for a while. I kept getting facts wrong. I didn't report well. They then moved me. They had an opening covering rock music in Nashville. They thought, well, maybe he'd be better doing music. I was just as bad. Mistake after mistake. Aww, wouldn't man. take advice. Well, I was just a screw-up. I was 22, 23, and I didn't want to listen to anyone. So I had something that changed my career, truly changed my career, which is my editor called me in her office one day. She basically said, like, you need to get to the basics. Like, You are not doing this well. And I'm going to put you on, on the cop's beat, the police beat. And all I want you to do is cover the police beat and just worry about who, what, where, when, how, and why. Just worry about facts. You don't have to be creative don't try being fancy just yes, write the news and i would say it was a really 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 invaluable experience for me where again i wasn't trying to be like the world's greatest writer i wasn't trying to dazzle people just get the facts right focus on the facts and that really changed my career and changed my life in many ways
0: Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I'm interested in that story that you told because you're known for your in-depth research that you do for your books. And so it's interesting to hear your journey from kind of this screw-up journalist to someone who enjoys research and enjoys getting to the basics and enjoys asking those questions. So did that passion for research come about after you were on the cop beat or did it take a little while longer?
1: That probably took longer, but the cop beat was the beginning of learning how to report. I just really, as a young writer, and I think this is a curse of young writing, is I just thought I was so much better than I was. I thought <laughs> yes. I was great. I thought I was the greatest writer and blah, blah, blah. And I realized, like, now I see, I look back in shame. I mean, like, you can turn a quick phrase, but if you don't know how to report, it's not worth anything. Yeah. First of all, I wasn't the best writer. That was a joke. And I didn't know how to report at all. Like, I did not know how to report. And you can't be a journalist if you don't know how to report. And what really so moving to Cops was a big thing for me. And then when I got off the of Cops, they put me finally in the sports department and I covered high school wrestling, which is the least <laughs> glamorous <laughs> you could imagine. Right. But I loved it. Like mm-hmm. I loved it. I lived for Overland, Father Ryan, high school wrestling, Nashville, Tennessee, and I went out. Um, I would dig into the subject matters and I would... I didn't really know wrestling, so I really studied the sport. I asked a million questions and it was a great experience. It was really a great... Another important experience for me is like covering yeah. sports and covering it a beat and sort of digging into it. And, and then I got hired by Sports Illustrated. And that's when I really, really learned about reporting, getting into uh-huh. that
0: Well, it's interesting to hear how your career is built on these incremental moments where you're learning and growing and learning and growing. And people have that kind of freedom in a corporate environment. And I don't know if you were a full-time employee back then, but now Mm -hmm. much of the writing that's available out there is freelance. You know, it's content marketing, it's the gig economy. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on how work has changed for writers and what the gig economy has done to journalism.
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, we don't go into offices anymore my first job at the Tennessean and then at Sports Illustrated. At the Tennesseean, I was going into the office five days a week at Sports Illustrated. For a long time, I was going in four days a week. Nowadays, it's more than ever. Journalism is a freelance world where you're getting paid based first on assignment as opposed to staff. Staff positions have dried up at a lot of places and they're relying on outsourcing the, the work. One thing that's really changed in journalism, that if you're me, I'm 46. If you're my age isn't so great, if you're young, it's probably great, is... With the sort of decline of print and the struggle of journalism, a lot of places are getting rid of higher paid employees and they're replacing them with the 23 year old who, you know, presumably can do the job for, you know, half, maybe a quarter of the salary they were paying the guy or woman who was making 200,000 or 150,000.
0: Yeah, they're back to paying 26 grand a year. Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, it's really depressing in a way. Here's what really depresses me about it. I'll give you the perfect example. So, Sports Illustrated, when I was there, I mean, they'll literally call it Sports Illustrated. The image is a huge part of Sports Illustrated, and they had a fleet of photographers. They had a staff of whatever, 25 photographers. They're all staff photographers. They're all making good money, and they were considered the best sports photographers in the country. Legendary, legendary sports photographers. And about five years ago, maybe a little more now, SI Lake got rid of every them all off, and I don't think anyone noticed. Mm. Like that's the thing that is actually kind of depressing. Same with writers, like. We no longer have a writer making uh, $200,000 a year. So we're going to pay a guy 30000 out of college. I'm not so sure people notice, readers. Yeah, yeah. And that's really kind of discouraging. I just don't know. It's not sexy to say, but I think it's actually true.
0: No, I think you're right. Well, you know, it doesn't seem to me, in my opinion, that the gig economy has done much for journalism. You know, I started out leaving corporate America in 2007. And that's when the gig economy for me really became... Uh, forefront in my mind, because the only way for me to get a job as a writer was to go into AOL and write per article or per word back in those days. And not much has changed. And if anything, it's gotten worse in the past 11 years. You know, you're a parent and you and your wife are very accomplished. You're thoughtful, you're raising your children. And I wonder what you think about the future of work for your kids. And if you're trying to do anything different to prepare them for the changing landscape.
1: Not really. I mean, my kids are only My daughter's fifteen, so she's a sophomore in high school.
0: Wait, you don't have her whole life mapped out for her at this point?
1: (laughs) Here's what we do. After a good question, I didn't think of it that way until you said that. Like, I hate what I see with a lot of parenting today. Yeah. And what I mean is this: like, force feeding of your kids into activities, this pushing of your kids—they have to get A's, or it's a huge failure. This, like, you need to pick one sport right now by age thirteen. Because you need to go in that direction. I mean, I know someone, I won't name names, obviously, but their plan is that their kid is going to be a professional baseball player. And they are doing everything to make sure their kid becomes a professional baseball player. And their kid is a high school sophomore. Like when I was a kid, my parents, the whole thing was go out and play. We'll see you at eight when you come in. Right. Yeah. You go to school and your teacher's your teacher. And you may not love your teacher this year, But we're not interfering with it. Like, that's your teacher. So you're going to have to deal with it. And if you hate your teacher, figure out a way to not hate your teacher. Like, the massive amounts of parents interfering in everything, calling the coach to complain, calling the teacher to complain, having your kids switch classes. Teacher doesn't understand my kid. Like, we are killing these kids. We are setting them up for so much failure and these expectations that aren't going to be met. We're convincing our kids that they're super, super special. It matters. They're, I don't know how many millions of humans walking across this planet. None of us are that special. I just like—I think the worst thing you can do to your kid at this age is set them up on a specific path. Tell them that that path is uber important. Don't give them options. Don't give them freedom. Don't let them be themselves. And I feel like we do that so much. I see that all the time. Now, I don't mean to babble, but it drives me insane.
0: Yeah, no, you're not babbling. That is well said. Well, listen, Jeff. After the break, we're going to come back and talk about your new book, Football for a Buck: The Crazy Rise and crazier demise of the USFL. So everybody, hang tight. We'll be right back with more Jeff Perlman and Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody, it's Lori Rudiman here. You know I'm all in on the Let's Fix Work podcast. I want to deprioritize corporate interests, amplify good ideas, and help people fix work by fixing themselves. But I need your help. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash let's fix work and contribute to the podcast's growth. I need your help in building an infrastructure, growing the community, and making Let's Fix Work a permanent place for good ideas. Your donation is essential for the show's success, and any contribution would mean the world to me. Thank you again so much for listening to Let's Fix Work, and thanks in advance for your support. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Lori Rudeman with Let's Fix Work, and my guest today is Jeff Perlman. Jeff, how are you doing? Is your coffee still warm?
1: It's an iced coffee, but I will tell you, Lori, I put almond milk in and I never like the way the almond milk separates from the coffee and yeah, it looks kind of like moldy and chunky.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I like my coffee black, which is something that's developed since I've turned... I'm 43. So in my early 40s, I've got this lactose thing going on. You know, it's my DNA and I'm just finally admitting it. And so I'm a black coffee drinker and that's how I know... No sugar? I, no sugar. No I'm sugar. a grown ass woman. That's how that is.
1: And do you go one cup a day or two cups or how much coffee?
0: You know, I drink coffee pretty consistently until about noon, and that's my cutoff. I know after noon, I'm not going to be able to get to bed at night. So I don't know, maybe three or four cups. But yeah, noon is my cutoff.
1: Wow, that's hardcore. Yeah, nice.
0: Well, you know, I do have a little writer DNA in me, and I think that comes out in my caffeine. So (laughs) anyway. Mm. Listen, you are a New York Times bestselling author. You've got a new book out called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise Mm -hmm. and Crazier Demise of the USFL. So you've got a story behind the book and how you got that published. Why don't you tell us that story?
1: Oh, yeah. So this is good. I have been dreaming of writing USFL book for years and years and years. And actually, when I was a senior in high school, my senior thesis, my senior year in AP English was the downfall of the United States Football League. And... (laughs) So my teacher said it should be 20 pages, and I handed in 40. Yeah. Now, Laurie, I am convinced beyond a doubt, and I've only thought about this since promoting this book, there's no way Mr. Height read all 40 pages.
0: <laughs> Probably not.
1: Imagine being this guy, and you're like, summer's like a couple weeks away, <laughs> and you got 20 pages on the Reagan presidency, 20 pages on the history oh. of Blake's mailbag, you're cruising along, and then you're like, who's the asshole who wrote 40 pages on the wow. downfall of the US of L?
0: God love these teachers.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So. I've wanted to write this book for a long time. And I was always told there was no market for a USFL book. My agent told me, Jeff, nobody wants an the USFL book. And then four years ago, I pitched a biography of Brett Favre, the Packers quarterback. And I had a couple of bidders on it. And I said to Hal Mifflin and the editor there, Susan Canavan, I said, I would take less money from you guys to write this Favre book if you give me some money to write the USFL book. So I got a two-book deal. I got less money for Favre. Not a ton less, but less and I got a really bad payment-wise book deal for the USFL. But it was just... It's the first time I've written a book. It's my eighth book. And it's the first book where it was this pure 100%. I wasn't thinking about the economics of it. I wasn't thinking about how many copies it'll sell. I was thinking, I just really love this topic. I want to write this book.
0: Hey, did that make you a better writer of this book, do you think? The fact that you were unencumbered by cash?
1: No, <laughs> it made me a panic writer.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know fair.
1: what it was? I can't say it made me a better writer, but It was so fun. Like it was so ridiculous. To use a cliche, I felt a little bit like I was playing with house money. Like it wasn't... Yeah. The pressure wasn't there in the same way. Can't even say that actually. The pressure is still there. Like you still want it to sell because you want to prove to people that you you should have written, published this book years ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right.
1: It was just fun. It was really fun. And sometimes when you're just writing... I wrote a book about Roger Clemens and I never was passionate about the subject. I knew I could make a good payment out of it. And I did, but it was kind of a miserable experience. So I feel like the fewer of those you can do, the better. Yeah, yeah, he is a miserable guy. But it just wasn't a fun experience to me. So the, the fewer of those I can have, the better. And this was just joy.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, listen, what's your favorite story from the book? I know there are a million stories in there. I've started the book. I haven't finished it yet. But what, what do you think readers ought to know about this book? What's a good story from it?
1: All right, so the USFL was a spring football league. And it, was, it came along in the early 80s to rival the NFL. And it was this crazy, crazy, crazy league. And it was all about the characters. And I found this one guy, his nickname was Big Paper, but his name was Greg Fields. And he was a defensive lineman. He played college football, Grambling, and came to the USFL. And he was absolutely nut job insane. And I was told about him early on. they were like, you need to find Big Paper. He's crazy. So... (laughs) What a name. He played for a team called the LA Express. in Early in 1984, the team decided to cut him. And the coach was warned, listen, you're going to cut Greg, but he's insane. So just be careful. And he's like, nah, it'll be fine. So he calls him into the office and he says, Greg, you know, you really, you appreciate your efforts here. But, and before he even tells him he's cut, Greg reaches across the table and punches the coach in the face, oh God. which is amazing. And then it gets even better. He starts calling in death threats to the team. I'm going to kill the coach. I'm going to kill the defensive coordinator. You guys better sleep with one eye open. So they hire away Liberace's bodyguard from Liberace, and he becomes the LA Express team bodyguard. And he starts tracing Greg Fields around. He puts a tracer on his car. He taps his phone. They start following him from place to place. And he's showing up. I interviewed the bodyguard. According to the bodyguard, Greg Fields is showing up at games, caught with a gun in his trunk, oh
0: my God.
1: staring down the coach from the stands. So the beauty of the USFL is it was just different level of weirdness and. The San Antonio gunslingers, even knowing all this, they were another team. They needed pass rush help. So they signed Greg Fields as a free agent and he joined the gunslingers. And the best part, the best, best part of it is the gunslingers ran out of money and stopped paying their players. So one day, Greg Fields put a baseball bat in his trunk, followed the owner of the team home, confronted him outside his house. The owner said, wait here. And he runs inside and comes back out with $17,000 in cash. And Greg <laughs> Fields drives off into the abyss. So there you go.
0: Oh my God. Wow. What an amazing story. Well, you know, it's a level of insanity throughout the book that I've read so far that it's fun, it's quirky. And for someone like me, who's not a huge sports fan, I'm like more sports topical, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, I can follow along and it's really interesting. So thanks for writing it. It's been a really good book so far.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I am really enjoying it. Well, listen, you've written eight books. And when we talked about putting this podcast together, you told me that it's really hard to get people to buy books these days. And maybe not even these days, just in general, it's just hard, but you yep. know, as a nascent writer, as a new author, I want to know how hard is it and what don't people know about the book business that would surprise them.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> I mean I'll put it to you this way. I've had a really good run by most definitions as far as writing. You know, I've had a good run. I've had a long career. And I've not been able to make a living out of it. And I've written eight books and so that's good.
0: That's excellent. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy. Like I'm grateful for everything that's done. I would say this interview I'm doing with you is probably the 130th US of interview I've done. Oh God, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I am lucky that people want to talk about it and that people have me on to talk about it. Right? Like I am lucky. But I think what people don't understand is writing the book is about... Maybe it's 60% of the work. Mm-hmm. But the other 40% is just busting your ass and appearing on every podcast, every radio show. Being active on social media, begging people to talk to you, you know, reaching out to people saying, Can I come on your show? Would you consider blah 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 set? Can I send your PDF of the book? It's like a nonstop marketing effort. And people think if you have a bigger publishing house like and mifflin or Gotham, or whatever, that they're gonna do the work for you and you just show up. And it's just not the case. They assigned me a publicist, she's great, I love her, but I still it's up to me to make it known and to go out there and to push the thing. So I just think people think like, oh, I'm gonna write a book and it's gonna be great. And it is great in many ways. But if you want that thing to sell, you just have to be your own publicist and your own hype man. You have to be the flavor flavor of your own product.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I see you out there. I see you doing it. You've got the big clock necklace. You're out there on especially on mm-hmm.
1: Twitter. I got the gold tooth.
0: You do. You do. You know, I saw Flavor Flav at an airport on a Friday night in 2007, and he was with his family going to a family picnic in Evansville, Indiana. And honest to God, that man didn't have a free moment to himself. He was in the airport, not only just entertaining his family, but entertaining everybody around him. He is never not Flavor Flav.
1: You know? Once you're a character, it's like the curse of Gary Coleman, what Gary Coleman went through. You're always Gary Coleman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, well, you know, speaking of Gary Coleman and Flavor Flav, like you're your own version of that. You're Jeff Perlman, right? You're on Twitter. But you're not just talking about your book. You're talking about our shitty political landscape, how you feel about Brett Kavanaugh, what you think about Trump, right? Who makes an appearance in your book, by the way. And when I Mm -hmm. first heard of you, Jeff, I was consulting at SiriusXM. And you were on the POTUS channel, the political channel, and not on the sports channel. And so... I think yeah. there's this weird thing in our society right now where we're trying to figure out where sports and politics intersect. And to me, they've always intersected, but some people feel like it should be church and state. So I wonder, what do you think about all that? And what's the connection between sports and politics? And why do politics and sports matter when they're together?
1: Well, I probably could have sold more books if I never started tweeting about politics. <laughs> well, I just think there's a loud contingent out there that, you know, stick to sports, stick to sports. Yeah, I hear you. see it. Yep. Yeah. And I do not begrudge anyone who does that. I cannot do that. I just don't. I can't do that. It was weird writing a book like this where Trump is such a huge character. And 30 years ago, he was the same monstrosity of selfishness and assholishness that he is now. He's just, He was the same guy 30 years ago. So imagine researching a book. On, I'm being serious about this. Imagine researching a book where you see Trump acting as a selfish asshole 30 years ago while he's running for president. And you're yeah. like... I can't believe fall, people are falling for the same crap. Yeah. He ruined the USFL using these same devices as using now. So I think I hate when people say stick to sports. I've always hated that. I can't stand that. I mean, if you look at everything going on, just with the kneeling and Colin Kaepernick, and I mean, what kind of idiot wouldn't speak out when these sort of things are happening? Like how selfish do you have to be? I feel like LeBron James has gained so much. His stature in this world has grown exponentially by the fact that he was willing to speak out against Trump. And he wrote one of the most powerful tweets I ever saw. And it was when Trump disinvited the Golden State Warriors to the White House. And LeBron's tweet started with, you bum, directly at the (laughs) president of the United States. Yeah. I love that so much. There's obviously a lot of intersection between sports and politics. I like to see athletes speak out and take a stand, even if they're for positions I don't support. I think you have a platform. You've been gifted with a platform. When people say just, you know, dunk the ball or just dribble the ball or whatever, I think it's really dismissive and arrogant. And, you know, I think as we've seen from LeBron and just as an example, like you can really be a powerful figure in society on the basis of having the ability to dribble basketball.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I grew up with Charles Barkley, who was saying, I'm not a role model. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right, in 2018, because now you've got Charles Barkley even making political statements and trying to model good behavior and weighing in on some political topics. So I just think it's really interesting. And I think I'm going to get some feedback about this podcast from listeners who are like, oh my God, you know, church and state, sports and politics. And I think your position on if you have a platform and you should use it is so important, right? Aren't you more than just a sports writer? I mean, you're a father you're a citizen, you're part of the community, why wouldn't you use your platform to voice your opinion?
1: Yeah, also like, what kind of callous asshole is, is only concerned about selling books?
0: Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. I right. mean,
1: that's insane. Like, I'm going to be a guy whose number one priority in life is just peddling books. That's what I'm going to be. I don't want that. I don't want that. And they're like, well, you know, your legacy, blah, blah. I don't have a legacy. I'm just a guy who writes books. But I just don't want to book myself in the mirror or raise my kids and tell them about social responsibility and just sit there and quietly peddle books, as this complete con man comes along and freaking. I mean, I just can't. I'm telling you, the USFL is a 30 year ago mirror of who this guy is. He ruined the league. He did it on purpose. He did it out of his own selfish, arrogant sort of needs to be something he's not. And I can't just like see that happen, read about it, know about it, and just go, "Oh yeah, buy my book," because there's a lot of uh, Herschel Walker and Doug Flutie. <laughs> what the hell? Who would I be, you know?
0: Well, you wouldn't be someone I'd want to talk to on the podcast. I'm so glad that you made time for me today, Jeff. Thank you so much. Really grateful. Where can people find you and your book online?
1: You know, jeffferlman.com and also on Twitter, at Jeffferlman. And I just want to ask you, do I still get... Is it? I couldn't tell. Was it, do I get for appearing today? Is it $10,000 or fifteen? How much do I get for this?
0: You get 15 cents. That's about what you get. Ah, Let's <laughs> Fix Work Budget here is a little low. <laughs>
1: No, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you did. And everybody stick around. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already
1: impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying.
0: I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jeff Perlman. You can learn more about him and all of his books in our show notes. And just a word that you can find me at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work, and you can head on over to Patreon, where we're building a community that makes work better. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra, Megan, and Gerson make the show sound great, and we couldn't do this without you. So please, if you get a second subscribe to the show, rate it and review it. We would love your support. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.